Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. It was once a rich woodland and marshes, inhabited by a few country folk who worked the land for food. You might occasionally see the odd royal galloping past with their courtiers chasing a deer or two. These nobles got to rather like Hackney, and a few set up home here, giving them a break from the bustle of city life. Even Henry VIII had a royal palace near Hackney at one point. It was the Industrial Revolution that saw urbanisation spread into Hackney. By the 19th century, Hackney was very much part of London's East End, its rural charm replaced by industry and poverty. As the area changed, so did its residents, and soon a burgeoning radical force took hold. Today's episode we're doing a little differently. I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Cole from Hackney Tours. Welcome, Simon. Hello. So myself and Simon were going to be doing a walking tour around Hackney for you to talk about its radical history um, from a feminist perspective. Um, But then the COVID-19 crisis hit and we were unable to do that event. So we came up with the idea of creating a podcast where we could give you an audio guided tour of what you would have seen if you'd come on that walk with us. So I wonder, Simon, could you start off by telling me a little bit about Hackney Tours, um, how it all started and the period of history you cover? Sure. So in 2009, I moved here. I'd been working in tourism for several years on uh, several continents. And I discovered how fascinating and rich the local history was here. The Olympics were coming up, so Hackney was very much in the spotlight And I discovered campaigns like Mary on the Green, which was the campaign to get a statue of the amazing Mary Wollstonecraft on Newington Green. And that was a portal, one of the portals, along with the excellent Hackney Museum, into the fascinating history of dissent and nonconformism here in the borough. And I like to talk about the people that from the late 1600s, right through to the 1800s were were part of this dissenting and non-conformist community but i also like to join it up uh, with the people like today's for example the social enterprise pioneers or the sustainability trailblazers because i see this as a river of alternative consciousness flowing through hackney for hundreds of years that's, that's a lovely way to describe it. Um, well, I'm eager to get going on our virtual walking tour. So if we were meeting in person, we'd uh, bring our visitors to Stoke Newington Cemetery. Simon, can you give us a little bit of a description of, of what you would see when you approach Stoke Newington Cemetery? OK, well, uh, the official name is Abney Park Cemetery. Uh, but of course, everyone knows it to be the, the jewel in the crown of Stoke Newington. And it's a wonderful place because, well, it's many things to many people. It's a place to commemorate the dead, but it's also a place to celebrate life. And when you're standing here, you'll see the most wonderful lush green vegetation, which is a consequence of the cemetery at one point being broke and having to be run by a trust before Hackney Council took it back in-house recently. But because of that uh, element of, um, I once heard it described as managed neglect. So it might look a little bit unkempt in some places, but because of that, it's the most incredible nature reserve. But it's also a repository of stories of of the development of London. And we have everyone from inventors 
and uh, the first MP for Hackney, right through to abolitionists and radicals and reformers who campaigned for all sorts of things. For example, the, the abolition of slavery, campaigned for peace, campaigned against poverty. And many of those people are women. Fantastic. It sounds like there's all sorts of people, interesting people um, buried at the cemetery. But who've uh, you chosen to talk about today? Well, in terms of women buried in Avenue Park, there are actually a lot of people we could talk about. We have Mary Hayes, friend of Mary Wollstonecraft, and a writer who called for gender equality around the same period. We have Betsy Cadwallader, who is, uh, we might just call her for the sake of uh, a convenience, the, the Welsh equivalent of Florence Nightingale. But today I want to start with the tombstone of, and it's a, a listed actually, it's the listed tombstone of Catherine Booth from the Salvation Army. Catherine Booth is an interesting one because you might not realise that the Salvation Army were early gender equalists. With her husband, General William Booth, they co-founded the Salvation Army here in East London in 1865, amid scenes of Dickensian squalor, where their marches, uh, calling for temperance, were controversial, and the Hallelujah Lasses, as they were known, were even opposed at times by counter-marchers who were paid for by publicans worried that the Salvation Army was going to stop people drinking beer. Catherine Booth was, by all accounts, a precocious child with a strong sense of social justice. And in 1859, she wrote, female ministry, woman's right to preach the gospel in defense of a female preacher who'd been accused of preaching in a too emotional way. In other words, she was a woman. And um, Catherine Booth, a bit like Mary Wollstonecraft in this respect, actually, both of these women step up uh, to write something which will become very well known in defence of someone that they see being attacked for what they think is uh, the wrong reasons. So Mary Wollstonecraft defends Dr. Richard Price. Catherine Booth defends the preacher who has been uh, Really, what this is really about is the right of women to preach. And uh, Catherine Booth takes no uh, prisoners at all. And... She was a woman of not just words, as we see here from this uh, the, the, the pamphlet she's written in 1859, but she's a woman of uh, a woman, should I say, of deeds as well, because she campaigns uh, with William Booth for soup kitchens. Uh, they march into the slums, banging their, uh, their their drum, playing music, and saying that everyone and anyone can be saved. We've got the soup kitchens. We've got. Uh, she campaigned on the issue of the age of consent as well for young women to have it raised and um, she changed the mind of William Booth actually on the issue of female preachers and there was a she got into a big spat with a guy called the Reverend Rees over this and he uh, people were quoting bits of the bible saying you know let your women keep silence in the churches and I suffer not a woman to teach and so there was this biblical war going on well actually if you look in this part it tells you, but basically what she was saying is women can teach up and preach and they can do it well and I will be doing it. Fantastic. Um, and remind me what period this was? 
This is the, so the Salvation Army is founded in 1865. So this is the second half of the 19th century. Um, she sounds like a wonderful woman, and I've actually seen um She also has a statue down in uh, Stepney Green. I walked past the other day. Um, so if you if you want to go and see uh, learn more about it, also pop down to Stepney Green. Um, so let's continue our walk now. Simon, where are we going next? Well, I thought we'd go over, sadly, leave this wonderful location, the cemetery with all its uh, vegetation and big trees and the sound of birdsong and hopefully it still has its two tawny owls. And I thought we'd cross over the road. We'd walk past, uh, well, we'd walk down. Now, this is going to be a little bit controversial. Is it Dinavor? Is it Dineva? I believe it's Dinavor, and I believe it's Welsh. It's a street name. And at number six in that road, Joseph Conrad once had lodgings in 1881. So I thought this would be a nice way to avoid the traffic after we've crossed Church Street. And then head down, walking south, parallel though, with the A10, rather than being on it with all the, the traffic. So we'll leave the Roman Road, Ermine Street, and we'll walk down the back roads, and we'll head to Barbold Road. And who are we going to talk about here? Barbold Road, or should we say Barbold, because it's a French name. It's named after Anna Leticia Barbold, who is, now she's not as famous as Mary Wollstonecraft, but it's quite bizarre because a, a recent biography of her actually called her the voice of the Enlightenment. So why don't we know more about her? Well, she was quite a woman. She was brought up in a time when women were very often not given a decent education, but she was. She was brought up in a dissenting household in the Northwest, and she had influences like um, her own father, but also Joseph Priestley. She was a polyglot. She was very good at the arts, but she was also exposed to science, and the dissenters are sometimes referred to as the rational dissenters because they were putting behind them the tradition and superstition of old church ways, and they were putting science into their uh, their way of life and their religion. So she uh, she's a dissenter. She understands what it is to be discriminated against. And she writes uh, poems opposing slavery. For example, she wrote in 1791, she wrote an epistle to William Wilberforce, Esquire, on the rejection of the bill for abolishing the slave trade, where she says, ironically, Cease, Wilberforce, to urge thy generous aim. Thy country knows the sin and stands the shame. So she's Perfect saying, dramatic. oh, forget <laughs> it, isn't it? She's saying, oh, you know, forget it. Uh, people, yes, it's disgusting and abhorrent the slave trade, but people don't care. Pack it in, Wilberforce. Of course, she didn't mean that. Wilberforce, by the way, did actually want to be buried in Stoke Newington with his sister, an abolitionist, and his brother-in-law who was another abolitionist, but he was claimed for the state. And that's why he resides now in Westminster Abbey. So she wrote that. She wrote uh, a very famous poem uh, about a mouse that was being trapped in an experiment that Joseph Priestley was undertaking. Science at this time was, was promising to revolutionise the world, but it can also be a little bit scary. But really, it's not actually about mice and laboratory experiments. It's about freedom and it's about lowly creatures being deprived of their freedom. She's writing this as a dissenter, as a non-conformist. The dissenters 
the nonconformists were not allowed to go to university or hold state office or state jobs. They were a parallel community here in Hackney. So it's a metaphor she's using. They, they are like uh, the mouse. They are um, at the whim and uh, the discrimination of uh, the, the establishment, as it were, the status quo. But then when she really upsets people is she writes a work called 1811. Now, this is a time of war. The French Revolution has been through its um, hopeful opening, its, its bloody uh, middle period. And then, of course, Napoleon has come to power. A lot of people in Hackney were very excited about the French Revolution. Oh, progress, democracy. Then things, a lot of people got a little bit jaded, for example, the likes of uh, Wordsworth. And then lo and behold, this country that we, the, the dissenters, the nonconformists are looking to, the social progressives are looking to, to, to export some of this good stuff to Britain. Lo and behold, it's got Napoleon in charge and we're fighting it. And there's a, a sense of ennui, of disappointment in this poem. And she contrasts a, a, a Britain failing in status with the rising power of America. And she laments the fact that we're at war with this country that uh, promised to, to, to give us democracy and reform. And uh, one of the lines, for example, is uh, aimed at Britain. She says, by Midas dream is o'er, the golden tide of commerce leaves thy shore. And this got into a lot of trouble because at a time of war, it's not the done thing to be critiquing the state. And it's one of the reasons why she kind of fell from grace. And I understand from academics, uh, much more knowledgeable than myself, that her star is slowly rising. And like Mary Wollstonecraft, she is uh, essentially being rehabilitated and rediscovered. So at the moment, she's very well known in academic circles, but expect to hear more of her soon. That's fantastic. And I was just thinking as you were talking about that, about kind of linking background to the present, and we've got um, lots of uh, poet activist types, um, contemporary um, on our uh, website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Um, so that kind of spirit of using arts and particularly poetry for sort of radical thought is, is still sort of going strong in the area. Okay, so I, I believe we're going down onto Stoke Newington High Street. Is that correct? Yeah, so I thought we've we've skipped. Um, I mean, I do love all the streets in Stoke Newington, and there's some, uh, it's managed to retain a great independent retail feel. So, um, but sometimes it's nice to get away from the main road, isn't it? But I thought we'd go back to that main street, and I thought we'd come out on the corner of. Uh, where Evering Road comes down from Clapton and where the High Street is. It's kind of the border between Dalston and Stoke Newton. And it's a great corner because there's so much history there. We haven't got time to talk about all of it. But I thought, echoing my theme of, because history is not, not something that's kept in a box. It's a continuum. And of course, we're, in, we're creating it and we're part of it now. So I thought echoing is also what you just said that we could tie it into today's uh, heroines today's world changes so because I, I said uh, i'm a big believer in the idea that history is n of no use if we don't tie it into what's happening today i think we need to use it to frame the present 
and to better plan the future. So who are the equivalent of Catherine Booth, of Anna Leticia Barbold, of Mary Wollstonecraft, those women who are, are, are prodding the status quo and rocking the boat and saying, this is not good enough, guys. We need to do better. And on this corner, we can see Stoke Newton Farmers Market, which is run by the social enterprise growing communities, which is, as far as I can tell, pretty much led and managed by women. And this is as well. What's what's so important about this? Well, I mean, what could be more revolutionary than the food that you put in your mouth? These guys are standing up for what they believe in. They're not going to be pilloried for, for the farmer's market, although actually they, they do receive criticism sometimes. People say, oh, it's just a very bourgeois thing, that. But actually, the food is affordable and you can use food vouchers there. But if we substitute uh, food for religion, they're saying that the, the, dominant, the dominant religion, the dominant food is not good for you. We're putting in too many calories into it. For every one calorie come out, they, they estimate we put in eight or nine calories. It's not sustainable. So these women here are rocking the boat and saying, we can't carry on like this. And I really do feel that, like many of the social enterprise pioneers, the sustainability trailblazers, that just like Catherine Booth, just like Anna Leticia Barbo, Mary Wollstonecraft, they are ahead of their time. And, you know, in, in X number of years, in the future, we'll all be doing uh, farming, uh, thinking about food, thinking about networks, the way they're talking about now. They are just literally ahead of their time. So the independent and the independent farmers market, I mean, I do like to stretch a metaphor, but the farmers market is independent. So just like those nonconformist uh, dissenting communities were non-hierarchical and they were separate and independent of the high anglican church and they decided their own um issues you know their own solutions to things they were they didn't need to wait for some big mandate to come down from the archbishop of canterbury in the same way this independent farmers market is getting on with uh, pioneering sustainable food for for the cent the coming century and they uh in return you know they, they might not be pilloried but when you are a dissenter when you're non-conformist i think there's always um a price and so the guys here at farmer's market on a saturday morning none of them are ever going to be rich that's for sure but when you come here and spend your money here it goes direct to the grower and you can feel that you are part of that wonderful tradition in hackney of critiquing uh things that many of us you know, deep down, we know aren't working and aren't right and saying, you know what, we can do better than this. And they do. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've never I've never thought of um, farmers markets like that. But you are right. And and food is a, an incredibly political issue from food miles to food banks. Um, I think we could probably do a whole podcast on just that subject, actually. And women have often been at the forefront. I mean, there is that stereotypical view of sort of women as the kind of homemakers and food providers. But, you know, they're also the ones who are, um, I mean, particularly during this COVID-19 crisis, it's 
Uh, I've been dropping off uh, food to food banks and it's always a woman who answers the door to me. So um, we're going on somewhere next and I'm quite, I'm quite excited about this one. I know what you're going to talk about because I'm quite interested in this particular group. So I believe we're going to Amherst Road, is that correct? Yeah, so we're, we're on this corner where you can um, see Coronation Avenue and uh, the little independent parade of shops on your left-hand side. And then you can see the farmer's market on your right-hand side at St. Paul's West Hackney, which is a wonderful organisation. I'm personally not religious, but they're massively engaged in the community with uh, groups looking after the elderly, helping the homeless. And groups use the hall like uh, NA and AA. And it fits in with what you're saying in a way that some of the most important work in society isn't necessarily recognised. And I believe later on you might be talking about these sorts of issues and the issues of unpaid work, housework, caring and all of those things and and why society uh, perhaps doesn't give it the status and the value that it deserves. But we can stand on this corner and then if we look to the to the south or just um just on the other side of the fence actually the southern side of the car park where the farmer's market takes place at at st paul's west you will see the end of amherst road and you will see a row of terraces and they come to an end and if you look at the top floor flat on that row where it comes to an end you will see 359 amherst road now Obviously, when you, if you're going to talk about women's history, you're going to get a range of personalities. You're going to get a range as well of approaches. We've talked about people that are creating different ways to, to eat. We've talked about people, not women, who are using the written word to change people's minds about things like slavery. But here, this is very much about action. Because, well, Astrid Prohl of Baden-Meinhof, was once on the, run, on the run in Hackney in the early 1970s. But prior to that time, our own version of the Bard of Meinhof Brigade was operating out of this top floor end terrace house. Now, I'm very careful to make the distinction of uh, comparing the Angry Brigade in some respects to early Bard of Meinhof, because the early Bard of Meinhof, like the Angry Brigade, targeted symbolic buildings, not people, in their campaign against the government of the time. Now, the reasons for the Angu Brigade bombings of of, uh, machine gunning, for example, the Spanish embassy, well, that's Franco, bombing the the, the home of a British cabinet minister here, well, there was a lot going on. They were critiquing empty consumerism, internment in Northern Ireland, industrial strife in the shipyards and at the Ford Motor Company. There was a lot of quite intense, heavy um, strife going on at the time around the workplace. Uh, some people might say class war. They famously said, if you're not busy being born, you're busy buying, which is a reference to Guy Debord and the Society of the Spectacle, because this is all coming just after the tumult of 1968 in Paris and across the world in Vietnam. You had the Tet Offensive. De Gaulle was almost brought down across the channel in France. So the Angry Brigade 
were responding to this with a series of bombings, which included the Barclays Bank on Stoke Newton High Street, which is now the discount bookshop. So if we walked down the A10 going south, instead of cutting through the back streets, we would have walked past that. And they're actually the reason that the bomb squad was formed uh, as part of the Metropolitan Police. Now, on 21st of August 1971, Special Branch raided 359 Amherst Road looking after the Anglican Brigade, because once they bombed a cabinet minister's house, they were de- deemed to have gone too far, and the word went out to smash the Anglican Brigade. As they said in a communique uh, shortly after that, this will be repaired in no time, but look at all these people living in squalor, in substandard housing all across London. But anyway, the police re- uh, raided 359 Amherst Road. There were some arrests made, and then there was a massive, massive conspiracy trial. There was a group called the Stoke Newington Eight, and there were all sorts of protests to uh, to try and uh, free them, fight for justice for them. But eventually, four members of the Anger Brigade were convicted. Two of them were women, Anna Mendelson and Hilary Creek, both of whom defended themselves in court and were, by all accounts, very articulate. You can read, if you dig in, do some further research, you can read some quite uh, amusing Uh, interludes from the court case there were all sorts of allegations that they were fitted up that the state had planted evidence and uh, they were they were very lively uh, very smart women in fact they were so articulate that they managed to get the jury and it was a split jury and they were eventually uh, found guilty but um, majority wasn't unanimous they managed to persuade this jury to reduce their sentences from uh, 15 to 10 years by pleading with the judge for clemency. So they were in court, but they were, they were able to basically say to people, guys, this is why we did this, you know, look at all this bad stuff that's going on. Look at all these people that are having a really rough time in 1970s Britain. And they got the jury on side. So they served 10 years instead of 15. As I understand it, Hillary Creek disappeared off into Europe to be a nurse somewhere, obviously a a name change. Anna Mendelssohn, well, we now know because sadly she died in 2009. We now know that she went on to become a successful poet under the name Grace Lake. And uh, you can actually read her her poetry. She uh, left behind the uh, the activism or the, the, the direct action of the Anger Brigade but they left a real legacy and there um, people sometimes say to me when I'm doing tours, I'll say, well, oh, how come I've not heard of these guys or, or why don't we know more about that? And some people have posited that it's because soon after that, the IRA started bombing London in earnest. And so that space in our head, when we think of these things, in the 1970s is already quite full with things like the IRA and if we know a little bit about Europe, by the Meinhof, the Red Brigades, and that kind of thing. But it's important to remember that Hackney in the 1970s had uh, had a real counterculture. There were lots of squats. We're going to talk about those later on. Uh, there were anarchist bookstores and all kinds of things of that ilk. And again, it's that river of alternative consciousness, constantly critiquing the status quo. And women have been very much at the forefront of these things. Women like, for example, Sheila Rowbottom, 
was in Hackney. But before we leave this spot, I'd like to bring it again to the, uh, the, the present day and just mention Diane Abbott because I was doing a walk, a uh, fundraising walk for the local Labour Party. They'd hired me and we were walking past the police station and she said, I can't go past here and not say something about the history of relations in Hackney with the, with the police, which have been quite strained um, at points with the black community. And regardless of, of what your politics are, you only have to look at the Twitter feed of Diane Abbott to realise that still today, a woman in Hackney who wants to stand up and speak her mind and stand up for what she believes in has to face up to quite a lot of abuse. And um, I personally, I, I wouldn't want to be an MP, but when I look at her Twitter feed, it does remind me that there's still a lot of misogyny about, as well as racial prejudice. And these battles are still going on and they're not over. And the women of the, uh, in those squats, in the bold in terms of culture in uh, the 70s and 80s, for example, they would have they would have had a lot of drama, you know. They would have had visits from the police, maybe even National Front at times as well. But it's important to remember that it's not in a box, and the battles are still being fought today. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think the the level of abuse that Diane Abbott has received is is just staggering. I mean, a lot of women experience abuse online but if you're a black woman it's it's tenfold and and there's another woman in our online exhibition um Zita Holborn who has experienced the same thing um and, and both Diane and Zita have both said it's basically people's way of trying to shut us up and tell us that we don't belong but neither of them are going anywhere I just think they're incredibly brave <laughs> I, I don't know if I could sure. I think I would have resigned ages ago they're amazing yeah also just going back to the angry brigade um they do get a mention in the new film um, Misbehaviour which is about the Miss World protests and stars Kira Knightley. So um, uh, there's a little, and, and also that film features Joe Robinson, who was part of those protests, who's also from East London. So I, I think of Misbehaviour as, as an East London movie. So go and check that out. So we're just going to go a little bit further down the road and we will get to a, a place called Hackney Pirates, um, which is an educational charity that works with uh, disadvantaged young people. Um, but it's not actually Hackney Pirates that I want to talk about because Hackney Pirates is quite new. And what stood in this place before them uh, was an incredible place with a very rich history. It was called Centerprise and it opened in 1971 and it was a bookshop and cafe. However, it also ran youth activities. Um, it had a legal advice centre. It taught adult literacy and had a publishing project where people could write and publish their autobiographies. They attempted to capture the spirit of Karl Marx um, in terms of for each according to their needs. And it was very much a cross-cultural, counter-cultural hub of Hackney life. One of the things that came along to Centerprise was an exhibition called Women and Work. And that was organised by a group called the Hackney Flashers, who were feminist photographers and they use their photography to explore different issues affecting women and the role of women in society and they were particularly interested in the hidden role that women played in society and the exhibition was very successful and it started off at Centerprise but it went on to many other venues and political events 
And then they came back a few years later with a second exhibition, which was about childcare, which I think is very sort of pertinent at the moment. Many of us, myself included, you might hear some sort of thumping through uh, this interview because it's my daughter's upstairs, like jumping off the bed or something. Um, so I think a lot of us are feeling the pressure of uh, work and childcare. And, and they were back in 1970 as well. And Flasher member Sally Greenhill recently said, I'm really shocked that the issues that we raised 40 years ago are still huge issues today. Nurseries and childcare are still expensive and remain one of the biggest concerns for working parents. And I I was asked the other day whether I thought that the COVID-19 crisis would attempt a fresh look at this issue. And and I really don't know the answer to that. But yeah, it's it's been an issue that we've been fighting for for 40 years or probably even more, to be honest. But they had this um, exhibition. And, and to make a, a, a point, when Sally went to do talks um, to, about the exhibition, she would bring her one-year-old daughter along with her who would sit on her knee during the during the talk to kind of make the point that you can't separate these two things, that you need like proper support systems. So Centerprise has got its whole own heritage project dedicated to it um, by an excellent organisation called On The Record. And there's a whole website that you, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but Simon, is there anything else that you know about Centerprise that you can share with us now? I think Centerprise, it seems to me, is that there is no one Centerprise. Just a little bit of research has made it abundantly clear that Centerprise has many things to many people. And this is echoed, actually, by a uh, there's a wonderful social enterprise project happening at the moment in Gillett Square, currently called Respace. And it's the idea that if you create a space then the community will come and they'll fill it and they'll do all sorts of amazing things. And so it's, you know, it's like, which enterprise is it the, the one where the, uh, the black community are meeting to talk about issues affecting them? Is it where uh, other marginalized groups are meeting, for example, women's groups? Is it the likes of Ken Walpole? Uh, is it the, the, the teachers, the, 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 the writers? Is it the poets? Is it the political activists? Uh, which enterprise are we talking about? And perhaps the fact that it's not easy to pin down as one particular thing is its very wonder. Yeah. Yeah, it, it clearly was a really amazing place. And when it closed down, there was a sort of big campaign to try and save it, which was sadly unsuccessful. And I, I do sort of feel that we we have a lack of these sorts of spaces. And it's a shame because I think they're really important. I suppose another thing about Centerprise is that way before we were using this word, it was an example of intersectionality, where yeah. elements of class, race and gender were all displayed at that, that point where they all come together and they all overlay on top of each other. And, and some people are disadvantaged by one thing and then other people are disadvantaged by multiple things. That was a place where all these these threads came in together into this this one building and then people were able to process this uh talk about this form conversations and and still increasingly as we live in a world of screens anytime you bring people together and they meet and they connect that in itself is a political act 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad at least it wasn't just turned into flats like everything else seems to be nowadays and that um, Hackney Pirates are continuing some really good work there as well. They're actually doing so well that they're actually changing their name to the Literacy Pirates because they're expanding. And as you identified, they are doing great work with their after-school reading club, which is uh, subsidised by selling books upstairs or hiring the venue out. So as you as you said, yes, it's great that literature, literacy, education is being used to help people uh, have more opportunities in the local area. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So we're going to just take a short walk down to Dolson Junction now. Um, it's it's been a little bit of a while since I've been there, but last time I was being there, I described the scene. It was a stinking hot day. I, it might have been a Saturday, I can't remember, but it was hugely busy. To be honest, it could be any day of the week because it always seems to be so busy there. And there were buses and there were cars. And, and to be honest, it was quite polluted. And I, I'm not going to lie, it's not the nicest place in the world, but it is interesting. I mean, it really is taking us as far away from those forests full of hunting nobles as, as you can possibly get. Um, but this point is actually uh, one of my favourite people we come to talk about here. And her name is Hetty Bauer or Boa. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. So she died in 2013. She was 108 years old. And that made her Britain's oldest campaigner. I don't know if anyone's beaten that record since, but um, I think that's a pretty good record to have. And she really did campaign to the very end. One of the last things that she did was um, give a speech at the Labour Party conference because she was a lifelong member of the Labour Party. And it was a wonderful speech and she received a standing ovation for it. And if you go online and, and Google her, you'll see lots of pictures of her uh, with Ed Miliband. Although knowing her politics, I suspect she gave Ed Miliband a bit of a run for his money because um, she was a real radical. So she was born in 1905 and she was born as Esther Rimmel. I don't know why she chose to change her name. I think it's a perfectly good name. <laughs> and she became political, she said, around the age of 10. So she had seen all the men go off to war, um, marching along, and she'd waved them off and waved her Union Jack and all the rest of it with everyone else. And then they came back. And she was so shocked at what she saw. Those same men returning with missing arms and legs. They were blind. They were disfigured. And she said, that is where my hatred of war started. World War II. She ran a hostel for Czech refugees. Um, and she was sheltering trade unionists, socialists, communists, Jews, anyone else that they could get out of the country. She later went on and became one of the founding members of CND. And she was on the first march to Aldermaston. And one of the reasons that I love Hetty is she's just so great for quotes. Um, so this is one of her quotes. We may not win by protesting, but if we don't protest, we will lose. If we stand up to them, there is always a chance we will win. I just, whenever I'm feeling a bit down, I'm like, I can't change the world and what's the point? I do think about that. She is so right. And, and she, she kept protesting and giving her quotes right up until her final days. And her daughter said that on her deathbed, her final words were, ban the bomb forevermore, 
Um, so she, you know, from the age of 10 right to the end of her life, she was fighting for peace and um, just a really incredible woman. We're going to go around the corner now. And on the same theme of peace, we're going to look at the Dalston Peace Mural. Um, and it's really, I, I will try and give you an audio description of it, but it's so amazing that either as part of your daily exercise, go along and have a look at it. I'll also pop some pictures in the show notes because it really is spectacular. So it was painted in 1985 by Ray Walker and is based on the Hackney Peace Carnival that happened a couple of years earlier. And in the image, you can see a procession that's passing uh, Navarino Mansions on Dalston Lane. And there are trade union banners waving. There's a brass band playing. And if you look really closely, you can see giant puppet figures representing the USA and the USSR, because this is very much the period of the Cold War. And it's funny now looking at this because peace issues have gone sort of rather off the agenda. If we do talk about peace, we often talk about it in terms of um, refugees, um, the war in Syria and things like this. But we don't really talk about it, at least in the West, we don't talk about it so much in terms of our own lives. Um, But back then it really was on the forefront of most people's minds. I mean, people really did think the world might end any uh, any day. We have an interview on our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk, by a Greenham Common um, activist called Ellen Jones. And she talks about, she was down at Greenham for two years, um, and she said that, you know, things like pensions, she wasn't even thinking about that. She was like, what do we want with a pension? The world's going to end. So this is really people's mindsets during this era. So we have the Greenham Women's Peace Camp in the early 80s, which I'm sure lots of people have heard about. But there was also a um, Hackney Greenham uh, group. And in 1984, they set up a camp outside Hackney Town Hall and they staged an exhibition that showed the horrors of nuclear destruction. Um, And they also organised picnics and had music and campfires in the evening. So it was a kind of, it sounds like to me that there was a sort of quite a sort of carnival atmosphere and... There was lots of community support for this as well. And when they had this exhibition on, um, membership to the Hackney Group increased rapidly. And in September of that year, they actually organised several coaches down to Greenham Common. And uh, you can go on our website um, and look at some of the pictures that we have of that group and, and hear some of the stories that happened down at Greenham. And, and I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes to some of those as well. So this well-loved landmark I feel represents Hackney's diverse community and its radical past. Um, So as I said, do go down there and have a look at it. Um, Simon, I'm sure you've seen it. it. What are your impressions of it? Well, as you're talking, I'm I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about the women in the anger brigade who weren't afraid to mix it and and get involved in bombing this world or, or shops to protest against objectification of women and consumerism. I'm thinking of the women involved in the 43 group on Ridley Road that we walked past fighting the fascists after World War II. And then I'm thinking about the Greenham Common activist that I heard speak uh, last summer, which really brought it home to me uh, about 
it's quite easy to to think of Greenham Common, I think, is and see the people singing and oh, it was all a bit of a laugh. But she described, you know, what it's like to have an American soldier pointing an M16 in your face at like three o'clock in the morning. And these are the things that we we don't see and we don't hear about. And I guess my own sort of one of the, the, the it's been a long journey for me on the issue of gender equality. But one of the things that one of the drivers was I was leading uh, waters and we'd go to the museums and you'd see all these tanks and see all these pictures of men. And then, you know, at some point I started, well, where are the women in this conversation? And my own grandmother had been involved in, in the war. She had stories. And then I started to read about, you know, things like the, the dark side of, you know, what it means to be a woman in an occupied war zone and what can happen to you. Um, and I started to realize that this whole side of, of history was missing. And so I, I think things like this are very important. Um, the Peace Mural is a wonderful thing. It, the more you look at it, the more you see. You can see the old British Rail uniform. You can see union banners as well. I mean, at the moment, there's possibly, after COVID, uh, a sea change where people are starting to realize that without a union, you don't have representation. But we we went through a period where, I, you know, you were talking about things that weren't terribly fashionable. They weren't terribly fashionable. But when you look at that peace mural there, you see all these representations. You see the missiles being snapped in half. You see the banners and you realize, you know, unity is strength. And it is a wonderful image of of, of community art. And it, it brightens up um, Dalston and it's next to the archives, which are named and the library, which are named after C.L.R. James who is uh, the famous, I think he was a cricketer for Trinidad and Tobago, um, and also a Marxist as well. So he would have been popping down to Centerprise. So yeah, I think the, 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 the things like the mural can be a great entryway into stories that are hidden. And of course, there are always more doors to open and more stories to be heard. And where you end up might be quite different to where you began, which in a way, I guess, is a metaphor for the, for the activist journey that lots of us have been on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I love about doing this work is pulling out the individual stories. I mean, talking about Greenham, um, on our website, we we interviewed a woman called Ellen Jones, who was at Greenham and just yeah you've briefly described some of the things that they endured but she talked it was even the little things like they go down into the village to get pick up food for the camp and they'd be spat at and she said that the police brutality that they experienced as well was was extraordinary and they were like labeled urban terrorists and and it's all these little details of people's lives that you don't hear about but you can hear them on our website so this takes us roughly to our halfway point. Um, and at this stage in the walk, we'd be buying a cold drink and jumping on the number 38 to rest your feet um, and take you into central Hackney. Uh, we're also going to have a little break now, but we'll be back with you in a moment. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There is also a walking tour app where you can take yourself on guided tours around local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of the family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. 
Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. I'm Esther Freeman. This is Rebel Women. I'm back with Simon from Hackney Tours, and we're going to take you around London Fields and Hackney Central now. So, Simon, if we'd been on that bus, was there something that we would have seen along the way that you can tell us a little bit about? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I always like to go upstairs, like Virginia Woolf, uh, do a bit of uh, earwigging. So if you see me, if you see me on a bus, be careful what you say. It might end up in a blog post. Um, but also you get a great view. And if you were looking on the left-hand side as we went down Graham Road, you might see number 55 and you might notice a blue plaque. That's because Mari Lloyd used to live there in 1888. She, uh, when you got off the bus as well, you probably got off by the Hackney Empire or close to it. Uh, and she performed, well, she would have performed there. She performed all over. She's probably the music hall star, I guess. Um, I, I mean, her story is absolutely fascinating because she, uh, we, we're talking about issues like, well, she was involved in a pace strike, actually. So gender, class, all of these things. She was done down by by some for being too, well, obviously for being too working class, for being, for being salacious as well, being bawdy. I mean, music hall was looked down uh, upon by some because it was the, uh, the, the popular culture of the time. It was for the masses. Uh, it starts off with people... Uh, landlords realising that if they put a room on the back of the pub or let out the room at the back and then get a performer and they'll sell more beer and pack it out. We get the likes of Albert Chevalier, we get Champagne Charlie, and of course we get the wonderful Mari Lloyd, who is many people's favourites. And she was so cheeky. She really was. She was once summoned before the Vigilance Committee um, and they said that when she sang, I sit among the cabbages and peas possibly a reference to outdoor sanitation in those times. They complained it was a double entendre. So no problem, I'll change that. And she changed it to, I sit amongst the cabbages and leeks. <laughs> and then apparently at the same, uh, the, the, the same session, just to sort of drive home a point, she, dry, um, she sang uh, Maud, Come Into the Garden Maud by Tennyson, but she sang it in such a lewd way that they were absolutely shocked but then afterwards, she said, well, it's all in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? It's all in the mind. And she was also involved in the 1907 music hall strike. She was out on the picket line there as well. She, she was a, a, a wonderful performer. She sang, uh, she took Nellie Powers' song, The Boy I Love, is up in the gallery, made that famous, Oh, Mr. Porter, all sorts of things that we, the kind of in the back of our subconscious there. She was responsible for popularising. But unfortunately, like Anna Leticia Barbold, she was also a victim of, uh, or should I say she, uh, she suffered domestic violence, um, which just goes to show how common uh, it is. I mean, I think it's one in four, the statistic. And when I found that out, I was really shocked. You know, it's one of those statistics you read and you go, there must be some kind of uh, of mistake here, right? But um, she was unlucky in love and um, she was successful in her own right and uh, some husbands it seems took advantage of that some men took advantage of that she was earning a lot of money but she's um this massive figure in terms of uh, popular culture uh, in turn of the century london and still today when you mention her name you'll see people smile a lot and you might even if you're lucky get a little rendition and i've, I've sung it a few times when i've done walks around hackney and amley park of 
the boy in the gallery, you know, I'll wave my little handkerchief. And in some ways, I feel like she's still with us. Oh, that's lovely. I, I'm really sad we're having to do this over the Zoom call, and I, I can't see that rendition now, but maybe another time. Now, Longfield had a massive squatting scene. So just to give a little bit of context to the situation, there was a housing crisis in the 70s and there was uh, a lot of people without homes while homes were standing um, empty. So it was it was really hard for lots of people, but it was particularly hard for queer women to find accommodation. Uh, oh, it was particularly hard for all queer people to find accommodation. You um, risk being rejected, vilified, or even bit, beaten up in your quest for a home. Um, but the issue for a lot of women was that they saw this almost as this threat as an opportunity as well because they were interested in different ways of living and uh, they wanted to come together and do away with gender roles and the children because a lot of women had uh, lesbian women had actually left uh, marriages and so were bringing their children with them so they could raise these children um, in a group where the children were the shared responsibility of the group and yeah there were a lot of women communes around London Fields and Broadway Market in the 70s and not all of them were lesbian but a lot of them were um, it was actually estimated that there were 50 women only households scattered in the streets between Broadway Market including one terrace on Man's down drive where there were seven women's squats the women they just learned to do all this DIY and I think they were mostly sort of self-taught or taught each other and they gained a real reputation so if there was a rundown property on the street the neighbours would alert lesbian groups because they didn't actually want these empty properties on the street because they become rat infested and, and the likes and they knew that these women would come up and they'd do them up and they make them nice again so there was one woman Annie Brack and she was one of the founding members of the Gay Liberation Front in London. Some of you may have seen that they were actually out marching for gay pride yesterday because it's 50 years since the foundation of Gay Liberation Front London. I, I didn't see any in that crowd, but she was one of them. And she actually helped to set up squats around London. And, and she saw the exchanging of keys as a very symbolic act because they changed the locks over and it was like changing over the purpose of the, the property. However, the squats could also be quite precarious places for lesbian mothers. As I mentioned before, um, some of these women were leaving marriages and sometimes because those marriages were abusive. Um, and one woman actually lost custody of her daughter to her ex-male partner who used the fact that she was in a commune as evidence of her being an unfit mother. Um, and there was a response to this and there were some uh, groups that set up to help these women and some publications. So there was the Rights for Women charity that was set up and they published Lesbian Mothers on Trial and Lesbian Mothers Handbook in 1984. And a lot of those sort of came out of hack. Let's head now to Hackney Town Hall. Simon, can you tell me something about this building? I'll tell you a little bit about the the Town Hall. It's um, from 1937. It's the third incarnation of the Town Hall. It has wonderful uh, Portland stone on the outside and it's Art Deco meets neoclassicism. And it's it's pretty impressive as uh, as town halls go you know some of them are a little bit mediocre but not this one this is a beautiful one and you know quite often you'll see things like for example on the pride flag flying um and then the lovely palm trees out in front in the sunshine and it's not unusual to see people coming out 
um, all different combinations of uh, marriage ceremony. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a good place. Yeah, and so much activism has happened in this uh, spot as well. So we talked earlier about Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott won the Labour Party candidate selection election here, uh, and she would go on to become the first black woman MP in the UK. Um, She's not the only historic record breaker either. Emma Boyce, who was an ex-suffragette, was one of the first women councillors and held a position at um, Hackney Council from 1918 to 1923 and Meryl Hussein Eke was elected to the council in 1994 and she was the first woman from a Turkish Cypriot background to be elected to public office in in the UK so Hackney really sort of pushing its sort of diversity and uh, record-breaking quotas there And we mentioned also earlier about protests that have happened here. So we had the Hackney Green and Common protests. But also more recently, we in July 2016, Sisters Uncut were protesting here with the lack of available council housing for women fleeing domestic violence. More recently, we've seen the Hackney Special Educational Needs and Disabilities Crisis Group Now, they're a grassroots group that are fairly new kids on the blog, um, and they set up following cuts to provision for special educational needs funding. So that's the support that children with additional needs need in school. That's been massively slashed at the moment. So they set up in protest to that. And some of these uh, women had never sort of really protested before, um, but they've done incredible work. They've had demonstrations. They've even launched a judicial review against Hackney Council, uh, which is currently they are uh, sadly they lost that, but it has gone to appeal. And at this moment, they're awaiting the outcome of the appeal. So it's really just been, as I guess many town halls are, a place of protest. But I think Hackney being such a radical points it it really has seen more than its fair share so we're going to head down to mayor street now simon can you tell us a little bit about what we would see on our walk and how it's changed over the years this is hackney central and uh it's slowly slowly but steadily changing and evolving and i've lived here for more than 10 years and so sometimes you don't actually see the changes because it's so gentle but of course if you look at pictures from the 80s you'll see that the boroughs changed uh, phenomenally we've got the hackney empire that's still there and that's had its ups and downs its ebbs and flows and kind of mirroring the fortunes of the borough but now it seems to be in a good place going from strength to strength uh, the lovely space in front of the town hall as i mentioned uh, a lot of great work still being done there for example you'll see streets kitchen feeding people every thursday there and the uh, the library and Hackney Library is still doing amazing things uh, for culture in the borough. The Hackney Museum, which is inside the library, and I must give them a plug. Again, I'm thinking it's I think it might all be all it might be an all female team actually, and they do incredible stuff that's always uh, relevant, keeping the taking the the, the the heritage and then mixing it with the, the contemporary. Uh, small space, big things coming out of there. And then walking down, we've got, um, well, we're heading towards the Elizabeth Fry 
refuge past the Vietnamese restaurants, which are still here, thank goodness. And I understand their legacy of 1970s immigration, when, uh, of course, we had the, uh, the, the Vietnam War was coming to an end. And uh, hopefully they'll manage to hang on for a while, because if you like Vietnamese food, they are the places to go. Mm. Ah, good tip. Um, so before we go to the Elizabeth Fry Refuge, I want to just stop. I'd be stopping outside Iceland, which is obviously not very interesting in itself. But before it was Iceland, there was a textile factory there, which is also not terribly interesting. But there was a woman involved in that factory who really was very interesting. And her name was Sarah Wesker. And she grew up a bit further down the road in uh, Spitalfields, uh, in the Rothschild buildings, which were tenanted by mainly Jewish families. Now, we have no available pictures of uh, Sarah, but what we know from descriptions is that she was only five foot tall, but she was a very formidable figure. So her size was nothing to do with her personality, which was very large indeed. And she combined communist politics with the Jewish principles of Yiddishkeit. And, and this is kind of a focus on the Jewish way of life and uh, the spirit of collective action. So there were lots of Jews involved in the trade union movement, including my own grandfather. Um, and I think it's because of this spirit of Yiddishkeit. So... Sarah co-founded the United Clothing Workers Union. So a lot of Jews were working in the textile industry at this time and long before. Um, And she became its first full-time organiser. And she organised several strikes, including the Simpson factory, which stood at this point where Iceland currently is. And in 1928, she also led 600 women out on a 12-week strike at the Rigo factory, which is just, was just down the road. And by all accounts, these were quite sort of carnival-like affairs. There would be singing and marching, which was all led by Sarah, um, to help boost the women's morale. And in this era, it was, it was very hard organising as a woman because... Um, The trade unions often didn't really want you um, in the union. They were concentrated on protecting uh, men's jobs and uh, women were just a bit superfluous. So Sarah described it as having to fight both capitalism and patriarchy. Uh, So, Simon, I was wondering, have you heard of Sarah Wesker at all? I haven't, actually, I'm ashamed to say, but she does sound a little bit like a, a British Rosa Luxemburg. Yes. And, um, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's made me think a little bit. I mean, her, she, her nephew, Arnold Wesker, is the person people mainly have known about. He's a playwright and he actually wrote a play called Chicken Soup for the Soul, um, which features a character which is apparently based on his aunt's. But it, so it's interesting to me that we know about him. A lot of people will know about that play, yet we don't know about her. And, and do we put that just down to gender or is there something else going on? Now you mentioned him. Yeah, I have heard of him, actually. The, the surname is familiar. I mean, I, 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 one thing I keep coming back to on my social enterprise walks is that I feel quite often that, that what we value, I don't know it. Do we not have the words? Do we need new words for the, to, to, to value things that are, that are, you know, sort of to do with what it's 
soul and, and the essence of being human and, and love and community? Or do we just need to get better? Um, I need to get better because I was stumbling a bit there. Do we just need to get better at using existing words to celebrate these things? And as you say, it's, it's for example, it's like the, you know, I come from a family of nurses. But in my hometown, someone who scored some goals for the local football team will go down in history. They have helped so many people and families in their, their final days, their final hours. They've brought light. They've brought love. They've changed lives. And yet they will not be remembered in history. And I suppose, I think if you're doing something amazing in the world, um, for example, Mary Wilsoncraft uh, and Latissi Barbold, they were both vilified. I think if you're doing something really amazing, then you almost have to turn your back on con- uh, conventional, in inverted commas, success and the, the plaudits and the ego and the status and all that stuff because you won't get it. And I think you make a good point about who is uh, who do we remember and why? And perhaps we maybe we ought to have another look at that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good point that you make about um, what we value and certainly um, the value of trade unionism has declined very dramatically um, and pretty I mean, people put that point from the miners strike which uh, and the way that Thatcher just crushed the unions and we've seen a steady decline and and I think sadly we've lost the uh, belief in uh, trade union activism as well so I guess maybe that's part of it I, I think probably the fact that she's a woman is also part of it but I don't think it's the only part of it because we do remember other women I, I maybe there's also an element of the fact that she was quite poor but I think it's a shame because I think she was really significant and and I think it would be really nice to celebrate these women more and I, I think there is a bit of momentum at the moment to try and give a bit more of a um, podium to these in the, podium is probably quite a good word I mean tearing down statues maybe one of Sarah Wesker needs to go up so we're going to move on now to our final stop and a woman I'm, I'm sure lots of people have heard of and that is Elizabeth Fry so if you walk a little bit further down Mare Street you will see a blue plaque on the wall of a building now last time I was there it was all boarded up but I have seen archive images of this building and it was very grand and it was the former Elizabeth Fry refuge. So it was built at the end of the 17th century and between 1860 and 1913 it gave support to young women who'd come out of prison and it provided them with food, shelter, medical support and training and religious instruction. The goal was the rehabilitation of the women and returning them to a respectable life in domestic service. Now To me, I've done quite a lot of research around domestic service and it it was quite appalling working conditions. So that feels a bit like from the frying pan into the fire. But a place at the Elizabeth Fry Refuge was really sought after because the alternative was often the workhouse. And the workhouse was really dreaded. I mean, people uh, would commit suicide rather than go to the workhouse. So we need to look at this in the context of its age uh, and recognise that the disadvantages these women who grew up in uh, severe poverty faced and, and the fact that the odds were really stacked against them. And actually... For their time, the Elizabeth Fry Refuge was 
quite progressive in that they saw that these women could leave their past behind. And that was a radical idea at the time, because a lot of people just thought you were born bad. But they actually saw that these women could leave their past behind and go on to something more respectable. Um, Simon, do you know anything about the latest status of the building? Because as I said last time I saw it was boarded up. I don't know, is it protected at all? It's a listed building. I believe it's been bought and there is planning permission, I believe, for the space behind it. Uh, but other than that, uh, we don't really know what's happening. Of course, it's the COVID period as well. So it's a kind of hiatus. So um, over the years in Hackney, I've learned to be a, a little bit um, circumspect about these things because there are all sorts of there are plans. And then, of course, plans go awry and then there are plans that are not the plans that they were said to be. And so we, we just don't know. But certainly there are people in Hackney who would love to see this building restored and something more made of it to tell this important story, uh, as you mentioned, of uh, a place that literally changed lives. And it puts me in mind of my friend today. She's working on the campaign to remove the tick box so that if you've got a criminal record, you don't have to declare it at every job interview. So again, the struggles go on. Mm, excellent. So that brings us to the end of this virtual tour. Um, Simon, what have you got coming up next with Hackney Tours? Obviously, we're kind of still not at a place where we can go out and maybe do uh, tours face to face. So um, what's going on for you uh, now or in the future? Well, it's a very strange time, that's for sure. A lot of people in travel are, are wondering what's coming next. I'm going to continue to push the, the, the change maker on the Hackney Champions and Changemakers, the social enterprise tours, because those are people I think that, that we need hope, we need light, we need positive messages to, to move towards too. Um, so I'm still going to, I'm going to be pushing those. Uh, but also I'm going to be celebrating the local because this is going to be the year uh, of the staycation. We can't travel in the way that we used to. So Proust says, if you can't see new things, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if you can't see new things, see the old things with fresh eyes. And Hackney, East London is the most amazing place. And I take out residents who've lived their whole lives here. And then I, I still show them new things. And they say, I had no idea this was here. And I say, I know, that's my job. That's why I do it. <laughs> so in this, this year of uh, limited travel, where we're going to be forced to reconsider and, 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 and revisit what's around us and to try to make that sort of, you know, that Saturday uh, at home a little bit more interesting. I'm really going to be trying to get people to reconnect, to experience the world in a different way and to celebrate being part of this wonderful culture over hundreds of years of trying to be the, the best East London and the best people that we can be. That's fantastic. And, and I, I hope sometime in our post-COVID world that we can get together in person and maybe do this properly and um, we'll, we can let people know if and when that happens. But for now, this is Rebel Women. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk.
Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the National Heritage Lottery Fund for their support of today's episode. Join us next week as we go on another special audio-guided walking tour to explore Walthamstow's radical past. <laughs>